1832, four Native American men from the Nez Perce and Bitterroot Salish, or Flathead, I'm probably mispronouncing that, but Flathead tribe traveled from the Pacific Northwest all the way to St. Louis, Missouri. Back in those days, that was a bit of a trek, wouldn't you say? They'd been motivated to make the journey because of a vision in which the Salish people received a prophecy of something called the Book of Heaven. You see, they were desperate to hear its contents, so much so that they were willing to make a trek all the way to St. Louis. When they arrived, they made the request of a man named William Clark, one half of the duo that we know as Lewis and Clark, to bring the Book of Heaven to the Northwest. And eventually, a man named Jason Lee and his nephew Daniel Lee volunteered for the task and uh, planted a mission Uh, or planned a mission among the Flathead tribes. In 1834, they left St. Louis, began their journey westward, and when they arrived in Fort Vancouver, they were convinced by the head of the Hudson's Bay Company, John McLaughlin, that they should instead head toward the Mid-Willamette Valley among the Kalapuya tribe. Their establishment of that mission was in a place just northwest of here at what is now known as Mission State Park. And the eventual movement south to avoid flooding of the Willamette led to the establishment of what we now know as Salem. Mission Street, which we can see directly out of our front door, was named after this original intent for the city of Shalom, Salem, to be a place that is known for the speaking and proclaiming of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the original intent of this city was to bring the knowledge of the Bible and the message of the gospel of Jesus to those that were desperate to hear it. And this is why, dear church, we chose the name Mission Fellowship when we planted this church. We desire for all who want to hear the story of Christ, the message of the gospel, to know and understand it. It is an awesome set of circumstances, a coincidence, that we landed a stone's throw away from Mission Street. We were called Mission Fellowship when we were meeting in a school directly next to the school known as Kalapuya. In our text this morning, we will be looking at the parable of the sower, also known as the parable of the seed and the parable of the soils. Many of you are probably very familiar with it. This parable, Jesus tells us, is the basis from which all other parables can be understood. If we don't get this one, we're going to have a hard time getting the rest of them. The reason for this is not because this parable holds some secret Bible code decoder pin, nor is it a hidden allegory, but rather because if this simple parable's main point is missed, then all the other parables will be missed as well. Put simply, it is a parable that calls into question whether or not each man or woman is willing to hear the gospel of the kingdom of God. And if so, to what extent are they willing to hear? This morning, we are covering one of the most foundational teachings of Jesus, the parable of the sower, and its point, be careful how you hear. We're going to break down the parable into four parts this morning. We're going to see the question that the parable is attempting to answer. We're going to see the parable itself and its main point and go through that. Then there's going to be a section that acts as a hinge between the parable and its explanation. And then lastly, we're going to see the explanation itself that acts as an answer to the original question. We'll step through each one of those. My prayer for us this morning is that each of us will walk away in awe of God's goodness, first and foremost, 
and in conviction as to whether or not we have responded to that goodness in a way that shows loving faithfulness. So let's begin by looking just at the first section. Why don't you take a look there at Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. First, we see the question that this is trying to answer. We have to read this within the text itself and see behind the text, the story that's there. You see, when we study the Bible, we have to realize that these were not just stories put together in a slapdash fashion. More often than not, there is a purpose and a flow to the way that it's structured, to the way that it's built. And that editing, that adjustment, that building is just as inspired as the original content itself. So when we see such a sharp distinction where we go from complete narrative, the telling of a story, into the literary genre of parable, we have to pause for a second and say, whoa, that was kind of abrupt. What happened there? We have to adjust and see what's going on there. We need to check and see if there are any reasons why the two sections might fit together. And in this case, they definitely do. Remember last week, if you guys can dust off the cobwebs from a whole seven days ago, uh, we were discussing the topic of insiders and outsiders of the kingdom of God. We looked at the masses, the apostles, the family of Jesus, the religious leaders. We looked at all of these, and through these groups, the author of Mark was helping us to see this context around the juxtaposition that those who seemingly make sense to be in the kingdom, like the religious leaders, well, often they're not. And those who seemingly shouldn't be in the kingdom, well, they often are. And this tension builds up to a fever pitch to the last verse in Mark chapter 3, verse 35, in which Jesus finally answers what the hearer is desiring to know over the course of the whole chapter. Who is it that gets to be in the kingdom of God? And Jesus' answer is simple. Whoever does the will of God, he is in the family of the kingdom. Now remember, the gospel, according to Mark, was designated to be read in one sitting within a church and so the hearers of it, as it was read aloud, would probably pause at this statement and think to themselves, as we might today, they might pause and say, wait, hold on a second. If that's it, if it's doing the will of the Father, wouldn't the religious leaders be insiders? But the point, as we will see, is that what matters is how people respond to the message of the kingdom and the person and the graciousness of Jesus Christ himself. If, as Jesus declared in Mark 1.15, the kingdom of God is a gospel, an announcement of good news, how come the religious leaders, the ones who have been holding out for the messianic good news, how come they are not responding to it as if it is good news? Why do some people 
respond in rejoicing and submission, and others in anger and rebellion? That's the question that is left hanging at the end of chapter 3, and that chapter 4 attempts to step in and answer. The question behind this parable that Mark is so selectively describing to the hearer is this question on the screen. Why do some people respond in rejoicing and submission and others in anger and rebellion? Now Mark gives the least amount of Jesus' teaching content out of all the synoptic gospels. But he's focusing in on this one to give us an answer to our question. And so here Mark is gonna present to us the parable. Now the parable, as I noted a moment ago, is often referred to as the parable of the seed or the parable of the soils. But we need to pause a moment and remember that when we interpret the Bible, we need to do so through its contextual history, through its context within scripture itself and through its grammar. How many of you have heard this before? And it's taught basically as an evangelical message, go out and sow seed. How many of you have heard it taught that way before? That's how I have heard it for years. In fact, every time it comes up, I'm like, yeah, 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 know that one, moving on. But the reality is, is that that is not the way to read the Bible. What would you say about my heart that my opinion is, yeah, 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 read that, let's move on. I'm probably not doing very well as soil that's been tilled, am I? And so I went back to this parable with open eyes and I invested a ton of time in it and I would ask you to do the same. Let's clear away what we think we know about this parable and let's pay attention to what the actual main thrust of it is. If we look at the grammar of the parable, the parable has one subject and multiple objects. Remember, a subject is the one who's performing the action. It's the one that we're supposed to focus on. And the subject here is the sower. The objects are the multiple types of soil that are receiving the message of the kingdom of God. And so it makes sense, and I love that the ESV translators decided to leave the uninspired heading here of the parable of the sower, because that is what this parable is about. In our hurry to look at the soils, we often miss what could possibly be the most important point of this parable. Jesus, with the crowds pressing around him, sets out in a boat just off the shore of the Lake of Galilee and uses the water and the natural contours of the valley as an amphitheater to help his voice travel so that all might hear. And there are both Jew and Gentile listening. And so Jesus uses a metaphor that pretty much anyone of the day might understand, the story of farming. It's kind of like if I'm talking to a group of guys today, uh, what am I going to use in order to speak a language that they know? Sports, right? Okay. <laughs> Um, so we use something in order to get it across, and he's using the story of farming. But that's not all that is included within the backstory of this parable. You see, Jews especially were people that would perk up when they heard this metaphor of planting, sowing, and reaping. This rabbi who was speaking had been talking on and on about this idea of the kingdom of God. And as I've reminded you before, this was not a new idea to the Hebraic understanding. The Hebrews understood Yahweh as a king. It was and is typical that a title used for God that's used for Yahweh is king of the universe. But what the Hebrews had been waiting for was when that kingdom that exists surrounding and around God in the heavenlies was going to come near so that they might be freed from the rod of the oppressive nations that held them down and enslaved them. And so the Jewish people had been waiting on the Lord, begging him for hundreds of years to make good on his promises in the prophets. And many of those promises had been phrased in the context of metaphors dealing with this same topic. 
Would you do some Bible study with me here? Would you turn first to Isaiah 5? We're going to hit some of the major sections of Scripture in the prophets. Turn to Isaiah 5 with me. If you've hit Psalms, you've gone back too far. Give me an amen if you're there. Ah, that was a good hearty one. Good job, guys. Seth yelling at you last service must have helped. Get some of your energy up. All right. He didn't really yell. I'm just kidding. Isaiah 5, verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. And I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it waste and it shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now, if you're the Jews, you're going to think to yourself, this is not good news, right? Let's personify a vineyard for a second. If you're sitting there as a vine and a grape and somebody comes and says, I'm tearing down the walls so that the animals are going to come and eat you. I'm going to allow armies to trample over you and you're going to be shoved into the ground so that you're never fruitful again. Is that good news to you as a grape and a vine? No, it's not. But then because God is gracious and good, he doesn't leave us in that damnation with no chance of hope. Take a look with me at Jeremiah. Now Isaiah... Isaiah had this Isaiah 5 passage. This was one that the Jews knew, right? And we as New Testament believers have verses that are firmly etched in our collective consciousness. Just like if I said John 3.16, the majority of you in this room would say, I know what that is. Portions of the Old Testament are just as foundational, and Isaiah 5 was one of them. It paints this picture that is scary for Israel, and so they needed hope. Uh, They had been labeled and called wild grapes, poisonous and useless fruit. And now, what God is going to do is he's going to actually help them. He's going to help them with hope that something is going to change. And so there, in Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 21, we see what that hope is. Set up road markers for yourself. Make yourself guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel, return to these your cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encircles a man. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. So first he's saying, return to me, return to your cities. They will be fruitful. And then people will be able to say this because the Lord has restored them. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. At this, Jeremiah says, I awoke and looked and my sleep was pleasant to me. Behold, the days are coming, God says. Now, hold on a second. 
Why would Jeremiah awake and say, woohoo, this is awesome? Because God's saying you're not going to stay as that trotted down vineyard anymore. You're going to be restored. And so Jeremiah quotes God, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. You see the imagery there? It's the same imagery, sowing, reaping, harvesting. Now, interestingly enough, because the prophet is reminding Israel that just as they've suffered and the consequence of their rebellion is that they become fruitless, he's now saying you're going to again be restored and replanted. And to do so, he's using this language of sowing and reaping. Notice that it's attached directly to something else. Take a look at verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a, what's that phrase there? Say that again. New covenant with the house of Israel. This idea of sowing and reaping is attached to the new covenant. The promise of a new covenant where God will form his people into a restored nation. And verse 33 says clearly that he will place his spirit and law with on his people that he has sown. And look at verse 33. He will write their law on their what? Their hearts. Does this sound familiar to something Jesus is saying in Mark? Okay, turn with me to Ezekiel. And guys, these are not, you know, weird verses like, ooh, who studies Jeremiah anymore, right? These are foundational to the Jewish mindset, therefore foundational to Jesus, therefore foundational to us. This is not like I had to go searching long and hard to find these. These are core to what it is for you to be a Christian. So in, in Ezekiel, go ahead and look there, Ezekiel 36 Immediately, those of you who've been Christians for a while and studied your, the word of God, you should go, ooh, Ezekiel 36. I think I know where he's going. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 8. Take a look there. Ezekiel, another prophet, says, But you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit. Does this sound familiar? I hope it does. Does this sound, sound familiar? Yes. Yeah, okay, good shall yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they will soon, be, uh, soon come home. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and, what's that word? Sown. And I will multiply people on you, the whole house of Israel, all of it. The cities shall be inhabited, and the waste places rebuilt. And I will multiply on you, man and beast, and they shall multiply and be fruitful. And I will cause you to be inhabited in your former times, as in your former times, and will do more good to you than before, then you will know that I am the Lord. Again, in the midst of the promise of hope for God's people, the prophet, this time Ezekiel, uses sowing, replanting, fruit-bearing language to describe what God, the sower, is doing. Tilled and sown here is language for you, Israel, will be humbled. Israel will be humbled by God so that he can then sow. And this is the background context for verses 22 through 32, which again is the statement of the new covenant that God will form with his people. Take a look right at verses 26 through 27. Notice the language. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Interesting. 
Turn to Hosea. You guys are getting a quick crash course in some of the Old Testament prophets here. Go to Hosea chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Now, this one, I will admit, is slightly more uh, out of the mainstream. This was not an Isaiah 5 or an Ezekiel 36 type uh, uh, story. Um, but still, take a look at Hosea 2.18. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you, Israel, okay, this is marriage language, to me forever. It's covenant language, okay? I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. In other words, two witnesses proclaiming what he's doing. The earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will, what's that word there? Sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, that's you and me, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. Again, in the midst of the promise of the hope for the people, God is talking about sowing and reaping. He's talking about him being the sower and sowing his people so that they might be fruitful, that he might reap a harvest. In all these promises we've just looked at, the metaphor is that God's redemption will come as a sower sowing new life into Israel, replanting them so that they might be a fruitful vine, redeemed for the work of the master. Have I pounded that into your heads enough? Pretty good context, right? Now, back to Mark. Let's go ahead and go back there. Back to Mark, Jesus will speak a few parables about the topic of seeds and sowing. But what is interesting is which the author of Mark chooses to include in comparison to the other synoptic gospels of Matthew and Luke. And in our text today, this is focused in on as one that's needed in order to understand all the rest. Jesus is the sower here. And in so being... For any Jew, they would know that he is actually, in parabolic form, speaking of the fact that he is God, come to earth, doing the work of the Old Testament God. He's sowing the seeds of the word that the kingdom of God has arrived that should be bringing about fruit in its people. But then, let's just pause here for a second and do a quick preview. Turn with me ahead to Mark 12. Now, don't hold me to doing a super short teaching when we get to Mark 12, just because I'm going there today. I'm still going to talk for a long time. Let's look at Mark 12. Notice what Jesus speaks of in parabolic form in this case, and is in essence saying he is. Chapter 12, verse 1, and Jesus began to speak them, to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. Does this sound familiar, guys? And put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. These are all the prophets going to Israel. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. 
And so with many others, these are all the prophets of Israel, God is sending them to say, guys, come back to him. What are you doing? Be fruitful. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Who's that talking about? Good job. You guys know your Sunday school answer. (laughs) Finally, he sent Jesus to them. He sent him to them, this beloved son. Anyone who's paying attention with even a piece of their attention is going to get this. Because Jesus has been claiming this whole time to be the son of God. Okay? Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. The heir of what? The heir, the inheritor of what? The vineyard, the fruit. Surely they'll respect him. But then they say, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance, the kingdom will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. Now, just in case we go, oh man, this must have been hard for them to understand. It wasn't at all for those that knew the Old Testament. For the Pharisees who knew Isaiah 5 in one side and out the other, look at it here, verse 12 They were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. There was was no confusion, right? Now, as we're going to discuss briefly, the parable in Mark chapter 4 is indeed one that should cause us as followers of Christ to think of ourselves as sowers of the word of God. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. We're many Christs. That's what Christian means. We're disciples of Jesus. So because he sows, we sow. And we'll talk about that. But I wonder... If we jump to that end too quickly, if we're not missing the main priority of this parable, could it be that the primary point of the parable was not dealing with the soils at all? Could it be that this parable is actually not based on us, but Christological, based on Jesus at its heart? That it's actually about the fact that finally, after all these hundreds of years of waiting, the Messiah was in the midst of doing exactly what he had promised. What he had promised to Israel to restore them and bring the new covenant. This was a declaration of Jesus, I am here. Do you want to follow me? Jesus came as the end time sower to renew Israel and graft into it any that would and will listen and submit to the proclamation that he is king. Jesus is the Messiah that sows the word so that he will eventually, in the fullness of the kingdom, receive his inheritance of a renewed vineyard full of citizens bringing ripe, wonderful fruit. The seed that he is sowing, the proclamation that he is making, again, contrary to popular belief, is not primarily about you and me or about our eternal state. That's a narcissistic view of this parable. That's a secondary outcome. The primary is the fact that Jesus is king over a kingdom and he has asked us to enter into that kingdom by accepting the sacrifice of his own blood on our behalf. Can I get an amen? Amen. And with that, the objects of the various soils and their states of receptivity merging with the proclamation that he is sowing is going to produce a crop that will honor the king as tribute to his goodness, his grace, and his faithfulness. For those who had been waiting with bated breath, who were on the verge of fully understanding his title of Messiah, 
they'd be able to understand this truth. But for those who were apathetic and not paying attention or wrapped up in the pursuits of life, they wouldn't understand it. In fact, many times they wouldn't even care. Brothers and sisters, which category do you fall into? Do you pant after God's truth and the message of his kingdom? Do you pant after it as a deer for water? Or are you apathetic in your desire for his word and the truth of his kingdom? It's a choice. I hear all the time as a pastor, Hans, I, I, just, I, just don't, I just don't feel like reading my word. I'm waiting for God to make me feel like it. I want to take those people and plug them into the marriage counseling sessions where one of the spouses go, you know, I just, I'm not feeling it anymore. I just don't feel like loving my spouse anymore. Because that very same person would probably smack that, that spouse and say, well, you have to choose to work at it. That's what makes a good marriage. Amen? Amen. If you wake up in the morning, uh, does, do any of you wake up in the morning with birds singing over your spouse with their morning breath? <laughs> do any of you look and go, oh, I'm so glad this person sanctifies me every moment of every day. No. You wake up and you go, hey, that's my spouse. I committed and vowed to be faithful and loving to them, and they did the same for me. Let's do this. That's a good marriage. When you wake up in the morning and you go, I don't want to read. Well, welcome to the club. None of us do. I want to stay in bed. But I've committed and vowed to my king that I want to understand him and know him. So what do I do? I step into his word. It's a choice. If you wait to feel like getting up and reading God's word. Now, there may be some of you that are way more holy than me. I, I'm totally open to that fact. But if you wait for that, guys, 95% of you in here are never going to read the word of God. Make the choice. Well, this leads into the next section, which in and of itself is a commentary on the parable of the sower. We see this next section in Mark chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. Let's look there. And when he was alone, when Jesus was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Now notice, it's not just the 12. Jesus doesn't have secret clubs. It's open to anyone. But notice, not everyone from the original parable have come with him to learn more. I guarantee you there were people, there were people at the back of the crowds when he was telling the parable that were like, um, let, me, let me try and understand that. Yeah, too much energy. I'm, I'm gone. I got stuff to do at home, Right? But then some of them, some of the crowd, including the 12, come to him and they seek after more and they say, what we want to know, help us understand. So he says, to you guys, you've been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, notice that he's using insider-outsider language, those outside, everything is in parables, so that, and he quotes from Isaiah here, they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven." And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? This section I've titled this morning, The Hinge. The Hinge. Because we see here a literary technique of sandwiching again in which two similar passages, the parable and the explanation of the parable, enclose a central section which gives light to those two surrounding passages and vice versa. And as we've seen, this parable is greatly intertwined with the prophets and their conviction and their promises to Israel. And Jesus reinforces this, as the author indicates, by pulling from a section of Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 10. Now, we're not going to go there just for sake of time. 
But if we look at those verses, we will quickly see that they are abbreviated here. He doesn't use all of it. In Isaiah, God is giving a task to the prophet to go and bring conviction to a stiff-necked people, and he's doing it out of irony. He's saying, go and tell all these people, even though they don't want to believe. In so doing, they're going to stiffen their necks even harder and eventually fulfill the condemnation Isaiah had already pronounced. But both there and here, the wording is in the form of ironic sarcasm. You can see that by, in a lot of commentaries, there will be an exclamation mark under, lest they uh, should turn and be forgiven. Not so here in the ESV. But Jesus is using the language of Isaiah to pronounce a death sentence on those who would not search more deeply into his teachings. He's stating that the three types of soil that eventually result in a lack of fruit are condemned in and of themselves because they've refused to receive the teachings of the king. Guys, this is what happens when you hear something like, hey, stop doing this, and you go, yeah, there's a reason I do it. That's what disobeying the commands of Jesus are. I had to admit to myself early on in my walk with Christ that there were all sorts of things that I had come to a realization and a conclusion on that I didn't actually have to fully follow that because Jesus understood. He knew my context. No, the reality is, is you either do it or you don't. <laughs> There's obedience and disobedience. And where my walk started to grow and really have a ton of fruit was when I finally said, you know what? I don't get to choose which commands I obey. The lack of understanding here of the people that are listening and hearing is not a result of the parable's innate complexity. This is actually a very easy parable to understand, but it's a direct result of their unwillingness to listen and to hear. Those that want to know more, in other words, those that continue to pursue Christ and his teachings as those surrounding him in these verses are, will be given the secret. They just simply have to ask and pursue. A gentleman named uh, Holenbach in a commentary for Bible translators reframes the statement from Isaiah to help us hear it, that it's not a statement about God hiding the truth from people, but rather to show the stubbornness and refusal of those who need to hear from God. So he actually proposes the following translation to help us understand. He says this, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand because the last thing they want is to turn and have their sins forgiven. Notice the sarcasm and the irony there. That's what's being said here. Because their hearts are hard, because they refuse to listen, it's not God's fault. It's not that he's made it too complex. It's their unwillingness to listen. And we know this is true because of the word that's used in the Greek, rendered here in the ESV and in the NIV as secret. There in verse 11, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom. In the Greek, this word is musterion, where we derive the English word mystery. And the reason this is important translation is that mystery intimates that the person presenting it not only wants it hidden, but encrypted, if it were translated mystery here. But the question we have to ask is, is if God were proactively keeping it complex and encrypted, why would he then go out and sow it freely to anyone who wants to hear it? The word secret translated, uh, the word uh, musterion translated into the word secret here is much more appropriate because it means that yes, it's hidden, but it's freely given out once you ask. 
It's just hidden from those who do not wish to truly pursue it. It's as if there is a slight veil, a veil that isn't totally shrouded in mystery, but it's not totally clear, and all you have to do is go around it and ask to see what's on the other side. And this is so important to understand because it's the point of the parable surrounding it. You see, brothers and sisters, we live in a time where we have to look back and realize that in the last 200 years, an overemphasis on end times prophecy has spurred a view of the Bible and a view of Bible interpretation that has left an understanding in many mainstream Christians' minds that the Bible is full of things that need to be decoded. You know what I'm talking about, right? You guys have all gotten the Revelation secret decoder pin, right? I used to teach this way. I used to teach this way, and I needed to repent. Because the point here isn't, I'm going to sow seed, good luck figuring out what it means. No, that's not the point. The only idea that that springs up is that, oh, well, I must not be truly spiritually gifted enough or ordained to understand what prophecy means. So this then gives rise to cults of personality where men and women use faulty hermeneutics and give errant understandings of unclear timelines and future prognostications that leave people confused and feeling inferior in their ability to read the Bible in front of them. Dear brothers and sisters, repent with me and don't fall into that trap. It is not that God has encrypted knowledge so that only the special few might find it and figure out why demons in Revelation look like Apache helicopters. That's just stupidity. It's garbage. He's merely veiled it so that those who are truly desiring to find the truth can seek it out. It's not encoded, it's just veiled. And that's all it takes. It does not take some special initiation into the secret mysteries or into the knowledge of prophecy or any other subject. All it takes is a passionate desire to learn and study God's word in plain language. Do you guys know that any of you are allowed to go sign up at Western Seminary and take theology courses? You don't have to be a pastor. Do you realize that any of you can go to the Bible Project and watch all of their videos and learn tons about the Bible? You don't have to be initiated. Do you realize any of you can go on Amazon.com today and download every commentary that's ever existed like I have on my computer? I don't have every one, but I have a lot, a few, few thousand. Any of you can do that, and you can read them. Don't fall into the trap. All it takes is a passionate desire to learn and study God's word in plain language. The secret here does not need to be decoded. It's plain as day. The secret that has now been revealed is that Jesus is the sower, he's proclaiming the kingdom, and the kingdom is made up of those that truly hear and humbly submit to his commands. In fact, Paul, a wonderful commentator, tells us this. Take a look with me at Ephesians 3. Go with me to Ephesians 3. He tells us what the musterion is. And if you sense passion in my voice around this topic, it's because I taught this way for years. Guys, it's encoded. Get out your secret decoder pens. And I am repenting to you just as much as I'm calling you to repent from that false line of Bible interpretation. Look at Ephesians 3, verse 1. He says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, right? That's the same word. The secret was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, 
when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. In other words, you'll see it just like I did, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been made or been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What was promised in the prophets is fulfilled in Christ Jesus, his forgiveness, his kingship through the good news. Of this good news, this gospel, Paul says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the secret, the mystery, the mysterion, hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was all according to the eternal purpose that he has realized, past tense, he has realized, not he will realize, he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. The mystery that is now revealed is the revelation of Jesus Christ as Savior through his blood on the cross, as resurrected and enthroned king over a kingdom, into which he has now drawn men and women who were in rebellion and sin against God's holy reign. And only by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, in your place and mine, have we been able to be redeemed and clothed in his righteousness so that we might be reconciled to the God that we sinned against. And through his sacrifice, we, the church, made up of Jew and Gentile the world over, has now been initiated and continues to spread this truth that the kingdom has come and it will come in fullness. Amen? Amen? Why are we still trying to unravel codes in the Bible as if God had not finished his revelation in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Guys, look at Revelation 1-1 with me on the screen. The revelation of the Antichrist and the tribulation and all those other things that we don't really understand. Is that what it says? No. No, what does Revelation 1-1 say? The revelation of... Jesus Christ. It's already been revealed. It's already been revealed. If you're looking for escapism and more things beyond Jesus Christ, Savior and King, you're missing the point. The Bible's about Jesus, not about timelines and antichrists and politics and wars. Oh my gosh, World War III's coming. It's gotta be the tribulation. Is the millennium coming? Oh my gosh. Calm down and keep following Jesus. What determines the ability of the listener to hear the message of the kingdom is not the willingness of the sower to sow the message in clarity. That's already happening by the fact that Jesus came to humanity and proclaimed the clearness of the gospel. What determines the ability of the listener to hear the message is actually their willingness to humble themselves enough to hear what God is saying. And if they can't hear this parable due to their hardness of heart, then they will definitely not hear all the other parables. Dear brothers and sisters, do you search out these things of God that are veiled but yet so clear? Do you know the most foundational Old Testament passages so you can understand the most foundational New Testament passages? 
If not, what needs to change in your life so you can devote your life to studying the word of your king? With this idea paving the way, this understanding that Jesus wants to reveal to us in clarity what's going on, we now come to the bold presentation of the explanation of the parable back in Mark. And in its midst, the the answer of the parable is going to be given to us, the answer to the question that we asked first. Why don't you turn back there with me to Mark chapter 4. Remember that the original question we asked is, if the gospel of the kingdom is good news, then why do some people respond in rejoicing and submission and others in anger and rebellion? So let's look at our last section now in Mark chapter 4, verse 14. The sower sows the word. This is Jesus' explanation and answer. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Here we see the answer to our original question. We began the teaching with a reading from Deuteronomy, one we all know very well, the great Shema. I was brokenhearted the other day because I met with a fellow pastor of mine and I made comment of the great Shema and he looked at me and said, the what? This is a pastor that teaches. And I said, the great Shema. The what? You know, Deuteronomy 6. No, I'm not tracking with you. Okay. Just in case we need to remind you, here's the great Shema. Hear, O Israel. Shema is the Hebrew word that means hear. It's what was read earlier. And if you dust off your memory banks from when we were in Deuteronomy, you'll remember that hear, Shema, means to listen and what? Obey. To listen and respond, not in rebellion, but in obedience. Because in the mind of the Hebrew, to let the sound waves go in your ears but not respond is never to have heard at all. It's just like when Kelly says to me, hey, remember to get bread and butter at the store and I bring back bread. Have I heard her? No, husbands, I have not. Repent with me on that one, please. (laughs) The same is true in the Greek here in Mark chapter 4, verse 3. Akuete, idu, he says. He says it with, uh, in verse 3, listen. Notice that there's an exclamation mark. Listen. Behold. It's an imperative, a command. And the word behold here is keep beholding, keep paying attention. Why did Israel not obey? Why were the religious leaders refusing to hear Jesus? Why does he have to command people to even listen? Well, he's about to tell us. It's because of the state of our heart. To do so, he's going to speak of six seeds and four soils. Yes, six seeds and four soils. First, we have the seed that falls along the path, the compacted hard soil. There's no soil here for the seed to even be received. 
And so immediately with no growth whatsoever, the adversary comes and steals away the gospel of the kingdom of God. These are those who are told that Jesus is king. He has purchased them to draw them into his kingdom, but they refuse their hearts are too hard. Do any of you here today walk in blatant refusal of the fact that Jesus is your king and savior? If you walk out of this room and you have not submitted your life to him, you are that seed. And Satan will steal the message that's been freely given to you so that you continue on into an eternity of torment. That's you. Don't let time go by. Receive the message of the kingdom. I beg of you. If you want to do that, the elders in the back, we would love to talk with you during the second half of worship to help you understand what it is to receive the forgiveness of Jesus through his blood on the cross and to submit to him as king. Well, second are those who hear the word, but their hearts are pictured as rocky soil. There's no room for roots to grow. The appearance of growth comes immediately, but there is no fruit. And when the difficult truth of Christianity requires the literal or metaphorical loss of their life or suffering, then their faith wavers. It breaks my heart how many people I have seen in my years in the church who believe that a premature, dramatic display is the same thing as abiding, consistent growth and submission to Christ. And a gospel that says, Jesus has a wonderful purpose and plan for your life. It's going to be great. Just follow Jesus. Try him out for 60 days and you'll see what I mean. The second suffering comes in, the second someone says to follow Christ is to walk in his sufferings and to be in a kingdom, a kingdom where you submit to his rule, well, that's not going to provide a premature dramatic display. That's going to provide a weightiness of truth that they need to consider and think through. Are any of us in this room like that? Do we disguise our lack of consistent, enduring discipleship with empty words and dramatic actions? If so, I lovingly want to call you to the marathon, not the sprint of following Jesus. I know so many Christians who followed Jesus passionately for like five years, and then they got married and had kids and joined Little League, and now they're not passionate at all, nor are they following Jesus. Join the marathon, not the sprint. I've been following Jesus for 10 years, you might say. Well, how about 70 and you die in his grace? Have you counted the cost of following Jesus and are you willing to lay down your life as he commands? Third, we see those who are planted even have a root, even display growth. But due to what are called the quote-unquote cares of this world, fruit is choked out. This word choked in the Greek means that the plant becomes barren in results. This is the Christian that exists in the church, maybe even prides themselves on their length of being a Christian, maybe even knows all the theological lingo, but there's no fruit in their life, no change in emotional or spiritual maturity, no growth in love, humility, peace, self-control, patience, no willingness to evangelize the lost with the truth of the kingdom, no desire to sacrifice in service or in tithe. There are too many other things competing for these people's attention, for their time, their talents, their treasure, to be a supposed disciple. Brothers and sisters, I would submit to you that the church at large is full of this type of Christian. Is this you? Do you find that you're constantly unable to devote your time, talents, and treasure to Christ because of all those other important things in life? Notice, guys, if you go there, notice that verse 19 leaves it ambiguous. Desires for other things. 
that could be really good other things, right? Do you find that you're unable to evangelize the lost because of your fear of man? Do you see fruit in the spirit of the spirit in your life and relationships? If not, I want to call you to decide to make a change to remove those things that are choking out the fruit in your life. Lastly, we see the good soil. You've covered three seeds that have gone in, and here in the one soil, we see three other seeds. One seed that bears uh, 30-fold, one seed that bears 60-fold, and one seed that bears 100-fold. And what's interesting here is what it took to make it good soil. We have to look at the story behind the story. You see, the farmers in this day would take their aprons or tunics and hold them with one hand tied to their waist, fill them with seed, and they would scatter them with the other hand as they went through the field. In an effort to make sure that every corner of the field was sown, they would cast the seed even into the edges in order to cover every ounce of ground. And so that's why some falls on pathways, on rocky soil, and into thorns. But a wise farmer would know that the crop was only going to come from the soil that had been prepared by plowing. To continue to sow or expect fruit from seed cast onto untilled soil was foolishness. And this is why Jeremiah commands the people of Judah to break up their hearts and remove the thorns that choked out their devotion to God. This is from Jeremiah 4, 3 through 4. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground. Who's got the responsibility for doing so? Is it God? No, it's us. You break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Now, what is the symbolism with this plowing? It means that the heart pictured by the soil is a heart that is willing to be broken apart, willing to be humbled. It's a heart that is not self-protective or defensive or refusing to listen. And just as a farmer would most likely need to plow through a field multiple times in those days to make a fertile field, our hearts need to be broken in humility often so that we come humbly before God. Guys, I had to admit at a certain point that I had a limit on the amount of input I would take. Well, one person's critique me, now two, oh, that's it, I can't listen anymore. What's your limit on receiving conviction and truth? And this is what James had in mind when he said in James 1.21, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The results in this kind of heart are ongoing yields of fruit. This is not a one-time yield. This is what's so inherently false and dangerous about the, hey, when's your salvation birthday? No, guys, are you saved today? Are you following Jesus today? You can't control the past. You can't control the future. Today, are you choosing to submit to your king and his people? I would actually say to you, forget your birthday. Focus on today. That prayer back in sixth grade, that's great. That's awesome. But that was a start. It would be like Kelly leaning over to me and saying, hey, Hans, you know, I know we've been married for a long time now. We've been together for 21 years. I, I need you to kind of love me a bit more. But August 9th, 2002, I told you I loved you. What's your problem, woman? 
right? No. Oh, okay, thank you, honey, for that feedback. I should probably humble myself and receive it. What are we doing today? And then that fruit of righteousness and justice, the fruit of the Spirit has always been and always will be the defining character characteristic of those that are truly God's people. Look at Isaiah 37, 30 through 32 on the screen there. And this shall be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself. And in the second year, what springs from that? Then in the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah, those that are truly Yahweh's, shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Notice that for some in the parable, this will be a marked and miraculous fruit. For others, less pronounced but still abundant. And so three different seeds are noted here with differing harvest. But what matters is not the quantity. It's not the quantity. That actually leads to fleshliness. Man, when I, when I first started, I was like, man, if we don't, if we don't become 1,000 people or 5,000 people, if we're not saving 300 people every week, I must not be a servant of God. That's not true at all. It's if you're even attempting it in enduring existence. The Gospels teach us that what matters is the preparation of the heart in humility and the immediacy of the germination that should occur when God's word, specifically his gospel of the kingdom of God, is presented to us. And we can never become complacent. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 40 years. We can never become complacent. If you'll notice the groups of people at the end of chapter 3, some are insiders like Judas, but they eventually become outsiders of the kingdom because of their unwillingness to endure within the implanted word of the kingdom. Others were outsiders like some of the Pharisees, like Nicodemus. Become, they become insiders because they're willing to hear and accept the proclamation that Jesus is king with humility. I chuckle when visitors will come up to me after a sermon and say, Pastor, I just want you to know that I agree with everything you're saying. Now, dear brother or sister, can I lovingly say I appreciate that? I know that you're trying to connect to me, and that's a nice sentiment, and I do appreciate it, but what matters is not if you agree with me or not. In fact, I'd be worried if you always agreed with me because sometimes my opinion gets infused into these teachings. What matters is if you have heard the proclamation declared that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the sacrifice for your sins, that Jesus is the king who will inherit the kingdom of God. Have you submitted to him by accepting his free gift of grace and forgiveness by the work on the cross of Calvary, in which he took the death penalty pronounced for your sin and mine? Have you given your allegiance and your life over to him as king so that your life is no longer your own, but it's his to command and will? There are no independent Christians. Are you moment by moment and day by day looking inward and humbling yourself so that your heart remains soft to the conviction that comes by the word of God and by his people. That's what this parable is about. Now, secondarily, I'm gonna throw in one paragraph here so I do my duty. When we look within ourselves to see the fruit that's grown, we need to recognize that fruit innately has new seed contained within it that needs to be sown so that more fruit can come up. We know that we are bearing fruit in part by the fact that we are joining the master sower 
in his mission to sow the word that the kingdom of God is here and is coming in fullness. And those that want to be part of it need to repent and turn to him. Are we proclaiming that gospel, the gospel of the kingdom of God to those we're in relationship with? That is part of the fruit of being a Christian. But primarily, I want us to ask the questions about Jesus, about our heart towards him, about our receptivity to his word. Dear brothers and sisters, how do you hear the gospel of the kingdom of God? Salvation by the cross. Enthronement by his resurrection and his ascension. How do you hear the gospel of the kingdom of God? How do you hear conviction? When it's brought to you, is your heart soft? Are you willing and ready to accept what is given to you? Brothers and sisters, we need to ask ourselves these questions if we are to hear Jesus at all. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what our Lord says to his church.